This is Christy Grainer, and I want to welcome you to the Dare to Believe podcast, where we are interviewing some of our friends about how they have dared to believe God in their life for great things and how He has been faithful to them. We want to challenge you to dare to believe God in your life. This is Christy Grainer, and I am blessed with the Dare to Believe podcast to be interviewing Tom Zawacki from Charlottetown Church. Charlottetown Vineyard. Charlottetown Vineyard in on Prince Edward Island. On Prince Edward Island, Island. yeah. Yep. So mm-hmm. that's been an adventure for you. It has been an adventure. We've been there five years now. Okay. Pastoring that uh, Vineyard Church. We've we've um, we've pastored for some thirty years now in a few different vineyard churches and a very colorful some. ministry path. We have had a colorful ministry path. God's been kind and gracious to us, and we've had an opportunity to do some fun and exciting things. Mm-hmm. And Tom and I know each other through connections with Streams Ministries International, with John Paul Jackson. Correct. But you have stories that are way before that, that are mm-hmm. very fun, very interesting. So yeah. why don't we start early on? Mm-hmm. Um, tell us about you and how you came to faith and where we, where you were from. Sure. Grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Maybe you can tell uh, by my <laughs> accent. Um, wow, in the mid-70s, the Catholic Charismatic Renewal uh, was sweeping through the New York City area, and, um, and it's, my family got swept along with it. Um, I was the last of my family members to buy in. My, my mother started going to this prayer group because of an uh, invitation of a friend, and, um, and then one of my brothers went, and another brother, and my father started to go. I was like, oh my goodness, what is this? But they just kind of seemed like they were a little bit crazy religious people to me. And, uh, and so was your family a church-going family? We were raised Catholic, and you know, we really, you know, we were typical Catholics. We'd go on Christmas, on Easter, Palm Sunday, you know, Ash Wednesday, and that's about it. You know, okay. As so a, a pretty impersonal faith. Yeah. yeah. My sometimes my mother would send my brother and I off to church, and we would sneak into the back of the church and grab one of the bulletins and go play handball for an hour or so, and then come back and say, "Here's the bulletin." <laughs> so that was our <laughs> no, okay. And so you know, my parents got saved, and um, and they really wanted me to come, and I was resistant. And so this one day. Uh, in in Brooklyn, a favorite sport among, especially the boys, was stickball. And you played stickball. You had a you had what we call a spalding, a, rub, a rubber ball. You got either a stickball bat or a mop handle, and you played baseball in the street. So manhole cover was home, and a, a bumper was first base. Another manhole cover was second. A car across the street was third, and then and home. And so. We were pretty good. My brother and I, my best friend Frankie, we were a pretty good three-man team. And uh, so we played on 34th Street. Kids from 35th Street challenged us to a game. Um, so we're practicing. And we're practicing on, on our block. And I hit a ball that must have gone a mile high. And my friend Frankie is the best outfielder in the neighborhood. And he gets a beat on this ball. He's running full speed. And just as he catches the ball... He runs straight into a fire hydrant. Man, he went down like he got shot. Wound up getting the biggest bruise on his leg. But he he held on to the ball. He didn't drop the ball. (laughs) And so the next day, we're supposed to play the kids on 35th Street. And rather than go all the way around the block, 
we're going to hop the fence, climb, go to the alleyway, and then just behind my house was the fence to get over to 35th Street. So Frankie's in front of me, he's climbing over the fence, and I see this broken toy plastic guitar on the ground in the alleyway. And so as Frankie's going up over the fence, I grab that guitar and I whack him across the butt. <laughs> he jumps down and he's furious. He says, you know I hurt my leg yesterday, what are you doing? And he punches me. And um, I don't know, I saw red. Um, I grew up with a funny last name, Zawacki. I was skinny. I wore glasses. Um, my mom was sick for most of my childhood. I was a pretty broken person. And uh, got made fun of in school all my life. And um, this is my best friend. He just hit me. And, uh, and I was enraged. So I turned around and I hit him back. Now, in this split second, I'm thinking, well, he's my best friend. I don't want to punch him in the face. Right? And I know he hurt his leg. I don't want to punch him in the leg. So I kind of aim for the middle. Right? Nanosecond goes by. That's my thought process. And so I throw a right hook and I crunch him in the side and it hurt him. I could see on his face that it hurt him. And to be honest, I was glad it hurt him. And so I punched him again. And now his eyes rolled in the back of his head and he falls on the floor. What we would soon find out is it ruptured his spleen. Oh my goodness. And so Frankie's being carted off in an ambulance. And his parents and my parents are best friends. And I'm thinking... Oh, my goodness, my father's going to kill me. And so I'm in the house, and maybe the first evidence that God was real to me was the fact that my father didn't kill me. <laughs> <laughs> and um, they all rush out to the hospital. I'm in the house by myself, and the phone rings. And it's someone who would become a lifelong friend, Carmela. She was a 22-year-old leader of this prayer group, calling to find out you know, what, what happened and because Frankie was going to this prayer group. My brother was going to this prayer group. Frankie's parents are going. My parents are going. And so this, this, this gal, Camilla, the leader, wants to know what's going on. Well, I'm the only one in the house, and I answer the phone. And she says to me, I'm 16, right? She says to me, how are you doing? And I'm like, no, no, you don't understand. <laughs> Frankie's in the hospital. <laughs> no, not me. She says, oh, I know. But how are you doing? And it gave me pause. I was like, I didn't even know how to deal with it. I was like, uh, okay, okay, I'll, I'll give my mother a message. I hung up. And so Frankie has surgery. They remove his spleen. And now he's my best friend. I have to go to the hospital to see him. It's only a couple of blocks from the house. And um, I remember going in there, and, and his mother's sitting there, and she's not happy with me at all. And I feel horrible. I'm saying, Frankie, I will do anything for you. Please forgive me. I said, look, I want to give you my bike. This is like my prize because I'll give you my bike please and he's like Tom I don't want any of those things he's like just go to the prayer group and ask the people to pray for me and my first thought is like take the bike man just take the bike <laughs> I don't want to go to the prayer group I don't want to go to the prayer group <laughs> anything but that <laughs> don't make me do that what am I going to say he's laying in his bed all these tubes around him and and uh, I said yeah I'll go to the prayer group now in my 16 year old Brooklyn mind Frankie was part of their group. I put Frankie in the hospital, and even though there's some kind of religious group, they should hate me because I hurt one of theirs, right? And, of course, that wasn't the case. And so I go, and these people were the most loving people you could ever imagine, and um, they knew the story. They were probably delighted to see me there, and, um, and for a kid who grew up with his mom 
half the time in the hospital with a serious heart condition, I was love starved. And they loved me well. And I liked being loved. And so I just kept going back. Mm. A few months later, they offered a beginner's Bible class called the Life in the Spirit Seminar. And my brother Robert and Frankie and myself and two of our best friends, we all took the class together. Ah. During the fifth week, they gave us an opportunity to accept Jesus. And they prayed for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we got hammered. Yeah, this holy <laughs> laughter hit us long before we ever heard, you know, about what God did in Toronto. You didn't know it was theologically correct or anything. <laughs> yeah, no clue. But we're laughing so hard we're falling off our chairs. That's how. Oh. My friend Paul at the time would say, he says, I've never, he said, I've been high. He said, I've never been this high before in my whole life. And so that's how we came, that's how I came awesome. to know Jesus. Yeah. And that was at 16 years old. 16 years old, July 1st, 1976, in the basement of Good Shepherd Elementary School, probably around 9 o'clock at night. That's pretty cool. Yeah. That's pretty cool. So that was at 16. Right. And shortly after that, you became part of a Christian singing group. You were telling us about this. Yeah. And uh, you've come become famous in a way decades later. Can yeah. you tell us about that group? So uh, the name of the group was Sunseed. And it was a, it was a really, it's a large group of some really talented uh, musicians and singers who were all part of different prayer groups around the New York City area, mostly Brooklyn. And uh, I forget, we, we all came together for, to play for some special event and, uh, and then stayed together and formed a band that we called Sunseed. And over the next couple of years, we were locally, we, we became somewhat famous. We recorded an album, and I was a percussionist. I sang a little bit, and um, we gained enough notoriety that there was some Sunday morning television program, religious programming. I don't remember what the name of the program was, but they wanted to have Sunseed on their program, and and so they did one or two songs on the air. But the band was so big, we had like 17 or 18 people on stage that they, we just couldn't physically fit in the television studio. And so only a few of us uh, went into the studio, and, and I was not one of them. And so this was, this was recorded, and someone had captured a, a, a VHS you know, videotape recording of it. It's probably sat in a box in their closet for 25 years and until... Uh, the woman passes and her son gets the box and pulls, finds this tape and decides to upload it to YouTube. And so the song, Jesus is a Friend of Mine by Sunseed, goes crazy viral on, on, <laughs> online. I think some 10 million hits to this day and just great fun, hilarious. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So then you, how did the journey to begin Coming a dream interpreter, you you're quite wow. a dream interpreter. You've been a pa you're a pastor prior to that. Can you tell yeah. us how the journey continued? Yeah. Um, in I think it's around 2002. Uh, Nadine and I we had left the church that we planted in Washington State and moved. Excuse me, in West Virginia, and we moved to Washington State and uh, began to pastor the Tri Cities Vineyard in Kenworth, Washington. Um, uh, make a long story short, God opened doors and gave us ridiculous amounts of favor where all of these prophetic ministers started coming to our town. And like, came, like who, did, who did you meet? Larry Randolph was the first one. Larry asked if he could come back with some of his friends, and we did another event with Bob Jones, Paul Keith Davis, Bobby Connor, 
Larry Randolph, um, Don Potter did the worship. It, I oh mean, just goodness. ridiculous amount of favor. So isn't that interesting? You just did had one relationship, but through healthy relationship, through a good relationship, he wanted to come back with his friends, and, and he has great friends. Yes, he has amazing <laughs> friends. Yeah. And, and so they came back, and we had this incredible conference. And, um, and though I'd been in this church just a short time, somehow through that we kind of like became the prophetic church in town. And um, Larry was one of the, the first people I invited. I'd gone away on a, you know, before any of these people came, I'd gone away on a personal retreat. I'm at this new church. We were there about six months. Lord, what do you want to do with this church? And I felt like the Lord told me two things on this retreat. And it wasn't like, you know, a golden fax came from heaven or an angel appeared or I heard an audible voice. That small inner voice, that still small voice that, you know, I'd grown to learn, hey, this is the way God speaks to me. And he, I felt like he told me to do two things, to preach on the fruit of the Spirit. And I would take the next nine months preach on the fruit of the Spirit. And he told me to invite three prophetic ministers to our church. And they were Larry Randolph, John Paul Jackson, and Paul Kane. And, you know, I'd heard of these guys and, you know, gone to some conferences and seen them from, like, the 100th row. <laughs> I didn't know them. I certainly had no contact information. But it sounded like God. And so I went home from that retreat and really in more obedience than faith. Well, and, and you dared to believe I that did. you heard God's voice and that you that, that might be God directing you. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I dared to believe it. So I, I, took, I took a risk. I found websites and email addresses and basically where i wrote to these guys is hey god told me to invite you why don't you pray about it and if he tells you to come then let's do this i love that you did that because you can be wrong when you think you're hearing god you know you pray about it too and if we we both agree that's awesome yeah Yeah. and so like six months after that larry came Uh, initially john paul's people wrote back to me and said he was booked for the next two years and wasn't taking any bookings and to this day i've never heard back from anybody for paul kane so um but larry came and and uh, we had this amazing turn of events over the next year and a half. And so I just kept checking back to John Paul's website. And, um, and so here we are, this prophetic church. And it's, honestly, it's not what I had wanted. You know, I, I had pastored a church plant in West Virginia for eight years. Mostly um, I pastored prophetic people while we were there. And I love prophetic people. Man, they're messy. right? I mean, but God bless them. There's, especially this one woman. Lynette is her name. There's got to be a special place in heaven because I went to school on her learning how to pass the prophetic people. Was it challenging or? Um, no, what it was, extraordinarily sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Okay. And she would have these amazing experiences in the realm of the Spirit, but it was so outside of my grid at okay. the time. I mean, I believed her. I never doubted that she had these experiences. It's just that I was... I was so rigid. I was so in the box at the time. Okay. Really what it was is insecure. I had this whole grid for life, and there was a, a cubby and a box for everything. And if, and if I couldn't get something to fit one of my boxes, well, then I just, in my mind, I didn't really need it. She, had she things didn't that, fit in your box. She had, she, she had no boxes. <laughs> there were no boxes, no lines, no grids. She just flowed with the Spirit. Mm. And so, you know, I passed her, and she trained me in, in a lot of ways. When it came to prophetic, she educated me for sure. So you had a good relationship with her. Oh, yeah, really good relationship. Which is interesting because not every pastor feels that they have good <laughs> relationships with prophetic people. Well, I think my gift mix has been pastoral and prophetic. And so it has allowed me to kind of bridge between the two. Now, in the beginning, I mean, she had been wounded by pastors by the time we met. And 
I remember being in, in her house early on in our relationship, and uh, I don't know what I said, but I said something that, you know, upset her, and it was her and her girlfriend, and I sitting there, and, and she looked at me, and she said, you can leave now. I said, I can leave now. I said, you throw me out of your house? She said, yes, I am. <laughs> I've never been thrown out of somebody's house before. Wow. So I said, like, okay, so I left, and then I called her up the next day. Hey, how you doing? She says, why are you calling me? Well, because I want to know how you're doing. And so she needed a pastor who would say, I'm not going to give up on you. Okay. And, and I needed a prophetic friend who was vastly more experienced than, than I was. And Isn't that interesting? Because what brought you to the Lord was that people just loved you, yeah. just loved you unconditionally. Yeah. That's the Father's love. Yeah. And what you were able to extend then to someone who'd been wounded by the body of Christ and by church. By pastors. Yeah, by pastors. Yeah. It's just to love her unconditionally. Yeah. It was it was wonderful. And we're still friends to this day. We don't talk as often as I, as I would like because, you know, life goes on and whatnot. But... She'll always have a special place uh, in my heart and a treasured uh, role to play in my journey. And so, but by the time I got to, and she wasn't the only one. There were other prophetic people in the church as well. And by the time I got to Washington, I was tired. And I was like, I remember getting to that church and saying, you know, if we could just love God and love people, you know, if the gifts show up once in a while, that's fine. But I really wasn't looking for it. But God had other plans. And so here I am. I'm at this church like less than two years. And suddenly we become the prophetic church in town. I'm like, God, if we're going to do this again, like I had a choice. But if we're going to do this again, I want the gifts of the Spirit to operate outside the four walls of the church. And this is what I was praying for. And so, like I said, uh, Larry Randolph came. He brought back a bunch of his friends. But I'm still looking online, finding out what's going on in John Paul's ministry. Actually, there's this woman, Lynette, who first introduced me to John Paul Jackson on cassette tapes. She had like this six cassette tape set on understanding dreams and visions. I listened to those cassettes again and again and again. Man, some of it was just mind-blowing for me. And so, you know, fast forward all these years, and I'm on the Streams website, and there's a little box in the corner advertising, if you want a prophetic evangelism workshop, contact Doug Addison. I'm thinking, I know Doug Addison. <laughs> How did you know Doug Addison? Well, we were looking, we felt like it was time to leave West Virginia. This was before we got to Washington. And uh, Doug was in Kent, Ohio, and he was dying from Huntington's disease. And uh, this was decades ago. Yeah. yeah. And he was, he was wanting to leave that church to someone so he could basically go home to California and prepare to die. And I was one of the people he interviewed. Doug tells a story that he was ready to give me the job. It was a really cool, out-of-the-box church, of course. If it was Doug pastoring it, you know it was going to be out-of-the-box. And at the time, you know, I really wanted to do this. And I felt like God speak to me, and, and he said, you know, these people would be good for you, but you wouldn't be good for these people. Ouch. And I really wasn't ready, you know. Because uh, you to, would not have stewarded what... God the, had already put in the right. church. It was too out of the box for me at okay. the time, which I kind of chuckle out considering where I'm at now. <laughs> yeah. But it was. And and so I I didn't want to, but I called up Doug. I said, dude, I'm really sorry, but this is what God said. And, and Doug really respected you know, my honesty. So here we are all these years later, and I'm reading this name, Doug Addison. So it's got to be the same guy. And I'm thinking, prophetic evangelism workshop, I have no idea what it is, but it does kind of sound like the gifts outside the four walls of the church. And so I wrote to him, I said, hey, Doug, do you remember me? These are the people God's been bringing to our church, and I would love to have the gifts outside. You know, can you come? And he writes back, he said, of course I remember you. 
He says, matter of fact, some of the people who are on the search committee for that church in Washington knew me, and they called me, and I told them to hire you. Awesome. The way God weaves it all together. Mm -hmm. Well, Doug came, and uh, he, he did a workshop, and it was an amazing weekend, just incredible. The presence of God was you know, powerful, and it's there for the first time. I met some amazing people like Scott Evelyn and Rob Mazza and, and Doug and a bunch of other people, and and so when the weekend was over, I got back in touch with Streams Ministries. I said, look, I see you have all these classes. I want to book every single class you have. And that kind of set us on a journey to connecting with the... So like the Art of Hearing God, Understanding Dreams and Visions. All those advanced, classes. Prophetic yeah. event. No, prophetic. Um, I forgot what the well, class was. The, um, the Advanced Workshop and Dream Interpretation yeah. was a 202. Okay. And, yeah. So yeah, was, we took all those classes. We hosted all those classes multiple times. Um, began to grow in favor with people in leadership at Streams and um, uh, people like Patty Mapes and Pat, Greg and Patty Mapes and other people and became friends with Reese Saunders and Jim Driscoll and just a whole slew of just amazing people. And um, uh, I would eventually uh, not only uh, host the classes but took training to teach the classes and then became part of the team that would teach the teachers, you know, so over a, a decade of, of time or so. And so in that process, God began to remove my box grids and <laughs> open my eyes to see again into the realm of the Spirit, uh, something that had been lost so many years earlier. So, That's cool. Yeah. And through that as well, you began to do lots of prophetic evangelism kind of off the charts i mean people yeah, fun stuff yeah so where have you where ha what are the most exciting give us a few stories about the coolest things that you've seen god do outside the walls of the church wow um let's see well i'll tell you one of the early ones so so all these dreams guys are coming and they're teaching us about dreams and visions and interpreting dreams and how to do it in a non-religious outreach type of format and and um and so we had a lot of training in-house uh, to prepare our people. And then eventually, you just got to jump into the pool, right? You just have to do it. And so the very first event that our church did was uh, in, in the Tri-Cities of Washington, the Columbia River just cuts right through town. And they have these hydroplane boat races, wildly attended. And so we set up a couple of tents and, and put up our sign that said, Free Dream Interpretation. And free life readings, that was our non-religious language for prophetic words. And um, put a couple of tables and chairs in there and let's see who would come by. And so, and you know, no one's done this before. We practiced on each other, but we've never done it, you know, outside. And so we're set up and the event really hasn't even started yet. And I'm there helping things set up. I got a couple of people with me. And the very first encounter was a security guard comes by and they're kind of checking out you know looking at everything and he's like oh kind of neat free dream interpretation huh? i said yep and he says my girlfriend had a dream he said she was dancing with a vampire what does that mean and so you know the, the church members who are with me they both look at me because i'm supposed to be the expert at this now <laughs> and, and i'm praying that very holy prayer that all of us know goes oh god oh god, like, oh god yeah, oh god oh god <laughs> i was like well it sounds like your girlfriend's playing around with something that's sucking the life out of her. And he goes, huh, yeah, I know what that is. And he just walks away. I was like, oh, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> we got one. 
And so that was kind of kind of the beginning. A couple of other different events in town. Um, we were at this one event. It's a week-long county fair, and they had rows and rows and rows of booths. And we're we're doing same stuff as a few years later, and it's all free. But about two rows over is the local psychic. And she has her tent set up, and she's charging $35 for 15 minutes. And so people keep coming to us and saying, hey, so when we went to you, it was free. And when we left, we felt good. And when we went to her, it was $35 for 15 minutes. And we left, and we felt bad. What's up with that? I'm like, well, you know, I'm not going to slam this woman. I was like, but, you know, I would, you know, I would take note of that if I were you. Well, after a few days, I guess we somehow were cutting into her business. And so she comes over one afternoon, and, and I happened, you know, we, we would rotate shifts, but I was on shift that time. And she comes over, and she was a woman, seemed like she was from India, um, dark, leathery, leathery-type skin and deep lines in her skin. And she comes over with two younger people, her son and her daughter. And she comes over, and she looks right at me, and she kind of puts her finger on my face. She says, what are you doing here? I'm undeterred, not shaken. I was like, well, we're, um, we're offering free dream interpretation and free life readings. And her, her next question was telling. She says to me, is it real? I said, yes, it's real. So she sits right down. She says, fine, you do me. And I'm, I'm like, okay. And so I'm looking at her, and, and the, I can still remember, the first thing I saw was a taproot that had gone down very, very deep into her soul, and it was black. <laughs> and, and so even before I could get to anything, I'm, and I'm trying to speak to her um, in ways that would be loving and encouraging, I said, there's been a gift, uh, a spiritual gift in your family on your mother's side for, for generations now, and, uh, and the gift that was on them is now on you. And she burst into tears. <laughs> I hadn't even said anything yet. Didn't mention the, the taproot or, or the black or anything. <laughs> she burst into tears and, and jolts away. And so a couple of our people go over to her and comfort her and, and, uh, and really just console her. And with that, her son sits down. And the people I had with me, they gave them light readings. Just rocked his world. The daughters sit down. They rocked her world as too. And so the, the mom comes back, and she's somewhat composed, and she says, you come by my tent later, and I'll do you. <laughs> and so it was just a wonderful way to be able to touch someone, you know, with the light and the love of God. Mm. And so that was exciting at, at the boat races. Um, so many stories. Well, and then you connected with Streams. Yeah. And I don't remember what year Reese was sent out to... Burning Man the Burning first time. Man. How, I yeah. don't remember. Do you know what year that was? It was a long time, right? A long time ago. I think I, I, Reese was telling me about Burning Man in the early days and kept inviting me to go. And my thought was, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. I'm not ready. I'm not worthy. And then eventually I felt like God said, you know, accept the invitation and go. And, and so explain, if someone's listening to this and doesn't know what Burning Man is, mm-hmm. how would you explain, how would you describe Burning Man? Burning Man's a, this amazing festival that takes place annually um, at the end of August, the beginning of September each year, in the Nevada desert, 50, 60, 70,000 people out in the Nevada desert. And it's, uh, it's a place where there is um, incredible artistic creativity uh, being expressed, um, music, 
um, and uh, people who are seeking and hungry spiritually. Mm-hmm. And so the team that we would go out with, um, usually it was about 50 people, and we would, on a grander scale, we would offer basically what we were doing at the boat races and, and the county fairs. We would give dream interpretations and life readings and, and some and other things as well. So how did you get to a point where you decided to say yes to the invitation to go to that, to, to, to attend Burning Man? Yeah, it was kind of, it was um, it was exciting and it was kind of terrifying all at the same time. Uh, I just felt like like God was saying now's the time. Um, I think I turned Reese down three times, you know, and um, and I just felt like well, this is this is now the time to go. And so I took about I don't know six or eight. Six people, seven people from the church, and we all went together, and um, and so yeah, it was it was just amazing, amazing time to meet with people who are uber sensitive spiritually, but maybe don't have a grid for God as you know basic Christianity understands Him, and so our heart was to meet them on their turf and to speak to them in a language that they understand. We felt like we were missionaries, as it were to um to the burners and um we would love them where they're at and and in every way that god would creatively enable us give them a god touch you know just give them a god touch and help nudge them along on their spiritual journey uh closer to jesus and so yeah so uh, you were telling me earlier about a young woman that really came to mind that you had touched. Can you tell the story of her? I think it's the second year, maybe the third year I went to Burning Man. And before, uh, before we got there, before we left to go, God put on my heart that I would have an encounter with a young Asian woman and that it would be really significant and to be looking for her. And so I started praying for her. I kind of had an image of what she looked like in my mind, but I did not remember, um, did not know who she was. And so I told the rest of the team, the way we, at least then, the way we did Burning Man, we had this big, long tent, and the front of the tent was kind of like a waiting area, and there would be people to greet the burners as they came in, and they'd usually sit, and we had music playing, it was a comfortable spot, it was out of the, out of the heat of the sun, we had free water we'd give to people. And then the rest of the tent was all these little groupings of people, two, three people, as teams that would, would basically minister to the burners. And so our host would, would bring a person over to a team as they, the Spirit led them. Well, I told them, I said, hey, be on the lookout for a young Asian woman because I really think God wants something special. And sure enough, young Asian gal comes in and they bring her over to me. And she has this most wonderful experience. She was, she was in a hurting and broken place. And I, I don't want to go too much detail, but she was pretty broken and pretty hurt. And I just... You know, she just began to, God began to lift her up, and she had profound experience in the presence of God. And um, and as it is with most of these encounters, we don't know where it goes from there. We're giving them a God touch and trusting that God's going to steward it the rest of the way. Um, we exchanged email addresses. No, we didn't. We found each other on Facebook. She found me, or I found her. And um, about a year and a half ago, she writes to me. Uh, we initially found each other, and then it kind of disappeared. And about a year and a half ago, she finds me and writes to me and says, Hey, do you remember me? And was saying just what a profound impact that event at Burning Man had on her life. And, 
and it was just life-changing for her. And then about six months ago, she sends me another message saying, hey, and the the tone changed. She says, I've been thinking about you and praying for you. Oh, really? I said, so how are you? She said, there's so much to tell you. And she goes on to explain how uh, someone invited her to Alpha. And in Alpha, she accepted Jesus. And, right? and so seeds that were planted like... And how many years transpired between you first met her and... Yeah, her? I met her in 2008. Okay. And so she writes back to thank me a year ago in 2016, and then just some months ago, how she's in Alpha. And so ministry, some t- prophetic evangelism ministry, what we do at Burning Man, we are the sowers who go out and sow some seeds, right? We, most of the church, we love to harvest. Everybody wants to harvest. But if no one plants seeds, right? Seeds have to be planted for there to be a harvest. I love planting seeds. I love being on that end. I like the harvest too, don't get me wrong. Pastor, sure, I like the harvest. Yeah. But I'm so, I have so much fun planting seeds. And seeds were planted, you know, all, all those years ago. Took some time. But now there's, uh, now there's fruit. Yeah. So you planted seeds of the truth of God's love. It's that love connection that continues. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And so, what else has God been showing you? What else have so God continues to stretch you? He does. You're talking about um, love, the love of the Father, but that that's even become more real yeah. to you. And yeah. and what are you seeing in the body of Christ yeah. in this season? Yeah. Or, I mean, what is God up to? What are you seeing anyway? Uh, so much, we were talking earlier uh, today and. Um, I had mentioned that um, I don't do a lot of traveling. There was a time in my life I traveled and spoke a lot. Not so much anymore, but um, I do. I will speak locally and regionally in a few different places. And when I'm speaking on the Father's love, what I a question I like to ask is, um, I'll ask. Say there's a hundred people in the room. I'll say, how many of you, when you consider your earthly father? You think of the most loving, the most supportive, the most present, the safest person you've ever known. And maybe three hands go up, right? And it's sad. The other 97%, like so many of us, they've been wounded by, they have the daddy wound. They've been wounded by their fathers. It's left a, a bad you know, mark on them. Now, there are good dads out there, but for a lot of people, they've had bad experiences. And I'm concerned that, you know, where Scripture says God made man in his image, I'm convinced that we've turned around and we've made God in man's image, and he looks a whole lot like some of our unhealthy Uh earthly fathers. And so, so, yeah, so people need to know the love of the Father, and they don't. Um, And I think much of the church and leaders in the church have also communicated through their own filter of, you know, their own father wound. And so uh, the father gets represented inaccurately. I jokingly like to say that when we consider the Trinity, many in the church see the father as the mean one and Jesus as the nice one and the Holy Spirit as the weird one, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, but Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen the father. I mean, we all like Jesus, right? Jesus, he gave his life for us, and, you know, he was the champion of the downtrodden and the broken and the wounded. You know, he, he saved the woman caught in adultery. And hey, this is Jesus who healed the sick and raised the dead. I mean, we like Jesus, but we're terrified of the Father. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, Philip, 
you've seen the Father. And I'm convinced that the church needs a new image of the Father. And one of the things that's helped me personally on that, that transition is a wonderful little book by Wayne Jacobson titled, He Loves Me. And uh, the subtitle is Learning to Live in the Father's Affection. I love this book. I love Wayne. Read the book. Read the book a bunch of times. Had the privilege of getting to meet and spend some time with Wayne later on. And it was great to know that the man you know, represented well his materials. Um, that book transformed my understanding of God the Father and the Father's love for me. Um, Wayne would take he would take portions of scripture that were, I mean, I've been a Christian for 40 years. These scripture verses are familiar to me. And I'm thinking, how is it that I never saw in this text what he sees? And it has just changed. It's given me a new lens to view who God is and that, and that God is safe and God is loving and God is for me and he's with me. And it's, it's been revolutionary. What do you think might happen if the next generation gets that picture, gets that gets a hold of that yeah. truth of the Father. I like to collect quotes. I've, I've collected about 350 pages of quotes in the last decade, and there's a quote by this guy named Ken Sullivan that I love. He says that a, a passionate lover will go vastly further than an obedient servant. And I think we'll make that switch. I think that there are a lot of people who serve faithfully. They serve sacrificially. And some of them just serve out of fear and trembling. If they could come to grips with the reality that they have a heavenly Father who loves them. First John 3, 1 John 3.1, see what great love the Father has lavished on you. That you should become sons and daughters of God. And that is what we are, um, John writes. That's, that's how he loves us. He loves us with a great quality of love and a lavish quantity of love. It's a game changer. Um, yeah, um, the, the freedom, the security, the ability to try and dare and explore and make mistakes um, is easy when I know my Father loves me and nothing that I do uh, is conditioned upon. His love is not conditioned upon anything that I do. That He loves so what me. what if you make a mistake? I'm not talking yeah. moral mistake. I certainly would maybe even if you did that. But yeah. if you make a mistake, like if you hurt somebody or you... You say something wrong, or you preach something incorrectly. Sure. What, so then, how does how do, how does that how do you respond? How does the father respond to right. you in that? Yeah, I've been around a long time. There might be some cassette tapes floating around that I hope get burned because I don't believe now <laughs> what I believe then. You know, so being wrong certainly is is mm-hmm. absolutely. But in my mix, I've changed. I, I and I, I see things new and differently than I did did then. I am not who I appear to be on my best day, and I'm not who I feel like I am on my worst day. Neither my critics, critics nor my circumstances define who I am. My Father has called me by name, mm-hmm. and I'm His. And He loves me on the mountain. He loves me on the valley, right? And that's what gives you the strength and the courage to dare to believe God for big things, because sure. you know your identity is in Him. More and more so. I, to, just to be honest, hey, I, firstborn child... Um, you know, A-type personality, perfectionist tendencies. I can be pretty hard on myself when I make mistakes. But I've learned in the process that my Heavenly Father, is, he's, he's not hard on me like that. He loves me. There are times on my, in my worst moments, I'll come before Him 
and truly expecting to get whooped. You know, he's going to take me out to the woodshed, and I'm just going to get it. And he loves me with an unconditional, crazy kind of love. So how does God correct you now, knowing knowing this love and how, do, how knowing, having this type of relationship with the Lord? How does he correct you in that? Um, wow, that's a great question. I don't think I've been asked that um, in recent memory. Um, what I find is that it's different than him correcting me. I'm not saying this is for everybody else. This is my relationship with God. As I get to spend some time with him, and we'll meet together in the realm of the Spirit, and he loves me. And, he, and more often than not, he wants to speak to me about who he is and about our relationship and all, hardly ever about my performance or my behavior. As, as a young, when I was younger in the prophetic, it seemed like, you know, I was excited to hear things about, you know, what's happening in China and world affairs and, you know, what's going to happen with the U.S. government and all these grand things. And as I've become closer and closer with the Lord, it seems like the things he most wants to speak to me about is about our relationship. He wants to talk to his son, you know, from his father's heart. And so I find that when we meet together and he reveals his heart to me, when he speaks to me about the things that are most important to him in that moment, it has a it has a changing impact on me. And so it hasn't been a, hey, look, we need to talk about what you did last Thursday and some changes are necessary, son. No, I'm gonna tell I'm gonna talk to you about what's on my heart and what's most important to me. And you know, my heart toward you. And in those interactions, change takes place. Uh, I spend time in his presence, and hopefully, I, I become I, I begin to take on more of his his nature. So, it's our relationship hasn't been one of correction; it's been one vastly more of affection. And it sounds like you know what you did wrong last Thursday. Oh, yeah. He doesn't need to remind you of that, but that you you need to know you're loved despite it, and it will change who you are because you don't want to disappoint the yeah. father who's so good to you. Yeah, remember Larry Randolph telling a story years ago that. You know, he would get, you know, names, addresses, and phone numbers, you know, uh, and or people's sin. <laughs> and God mm-hmm. spoke to Larry and said, Larry, they know their name, their address, their phone number, and they know their sin. What they don't know is that I love them. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't know their destiny. And so I know what I've done wrong. The Father certainly knows what I've done wrong. What I need when I come to him is his love. What I need is his embrace. What I need is him to impart more of his nature to me, and that's transformative. And so, I, again, this is my my journey. It's vastly less about performance um, or production, and it's much more about presence, being together, walking together. And as we walk together, we become like him. We This is one of the sayings we have for our church, that we, we want to take people through three processes First is they belong, then they believe, and then they become. First, everyone belongs. I don't care where you're at. I don't care how messed up your life is, you know. Everyone belongs. And in the process of belonging and being a, a part of this communion, um, then we we get to, to a place where we begin to believe, or we begin to trust God. And in that journey of being part of a belonging community and trusting God, then we become more like Him. And it's that's the that's, that's the, the goal. Tr- that's the goal. 
So in all of this and all that you've done, tell us a little bit about what part um, dreams and visions and getting prophetic words, what, what part does that play in this? For a while, when you first started, it sounds like it was really kind of crazy and you went to Burning Man, you did some very strong outreach, things like that were happening. But now as you're kind of further along in your journey, yeah. what part do dreams and visions and encounters and things like that yeah. play? So, you know, back to, you know, God sending these prophetic people to our church. Um, so what kind of happened for me as a, as a young child, at like eight years old, I would see things. God had given part of the gift that came with my, my design when he created me is that I could see into the realm of the spirit. I had no language for it, had no understanding, no grid for it. Um, and I would get in trouble for it. I can remember, how old are you in the first grade? Like seven? Or six or so. Se- yeah. Six or six, seven, seven years old. I'm called to the principal's office. What do you got to do as a first grader to get called to the principal's office? And when I get there, both my parents are there. Oh, my goodness. So here I am in the principal's office with my teacher. It was a Catholic parochial school, right? So there were two nuns on one side of the desk. Me and my parents, my dad's there too, on the other side of the desk. And I'm thinking, wow, what's going on? And um, and actually, I kind of knew. I knew I was in trouble. I was in trouble for what they they defined as daydreaming, right? Ah. And so I would go on these amazing adventures as a six-year-old. I would, you know, I'd fly in out of space. I would slay dragons. I had superpowers. It was awesome. And for me, anyway, vastly more uh, entertaining than trying to learn to write the alphabet <laughs> or, you know, do basic arithmetic. And, and so they were forever telling me to stop daydreaming. I can remember even right now sitting in that first class and looking out the window. <laughs> I don't know where I went, but I was having fun. And so, but here I am, a six-year-old, and they tell me, daydreaming's bad. Stop daydreaming. If you want to be a good boy, stop daydreaming. And of course I want to be a good boy. Every authority figure in my life is sitting in this room telling me not to do something, and they just kind of shut down. Years later, as a 16-year-old, I get saved, and I get my hands on this book by Charles and Francis Hunter called, um, what was the name of the book, by a, a pastor in Boise, Idaho who had these amazing religious, uh, angelic experiences. Um, oh, the name will come to me. It's not uh, Anna Roundtree, is it? No, no. Um, anyway, I had, I had, somebody gave me this book, and I'm reading this book, and it's talking about these amazing angelic encounters that Roland Buck from Boise, Idaho. Roland Buck. R- R- yeah, Roland Buck. And um, Angels on Assignment, that's the name okay. of the book. By Charles and Francis Hunter about the life of Roland Buck, a pastor in Boise, Idaho, having these incredible angelic encounters. And I'm reading this book and thinking, this is the coolest thing in the whole world. And I just joined, I'm a Christian now, I can do this? I want this. If this is, this is in the mix, I'm signing <laughs> up for this, right? This is the most exciting thing I could ever possibly imagine. I could actually have superpowers. Yeah, yeah this might this. be real. <clears throat> and some, I'm sure, well-meaning gentlemen. I had my I had my Good News Bible with the denim cover, of course, right? Because that's <laughs> it the, was the '70s. Right? It was the '70s. <laughs> and I and that little book, and I carried the two of them around with me everywhere I went. And some well-meaning man at the pro, at the uh, prayer group said to me, "Don't read that book. That's not God." I'm like. Oh, man, so disappointing. Isn't it interesting how many times the enemy tried to shut this down in your life? Yeah. And so I went home and put that book on the shelf. And that book stayed on the shelf for 25 years. Really? Yeah. Now, I must have moved 10 times in that 25-year period. Here it is 25 years later. 
Paul Keith Davis is at our church doing a conference, and he's telling stories about this pastor from Boise, Idaho, <laughs> and these angelic encounters. And I'm thinking to myself, how do I know these stories? You know, where is this from? And and Paul keeps talking a bit longer and longer. I realized oh, it's that book. You know, it's. And I'm thinking, do I still have that book? You know what? All these years later, I'm I'm I collect books, <laughs> and I go looking, and sure enough, the very same copy. When I pulled that book off the shelf, it was almost like, you know, picking up the gift again. And so all these prophetic guys are coming, and I'm praying regularly. Oh God, give me eyes that see, give me ears to hear. Give me eyes that see. For about two years, I'm praying this. And every time one of these guys would come to town, like, you know, lay hands on me, pray <laughs> impartation, you know, pray that God will open my eyes. Well, he began to open my eyes. And um, I remember, you know, I mean, over those 25 years, God would speak to me, this still small voice kind of thing, but I really wasn't seeing anything, or at least not much. And so these guys are praying, and I'm praying, and God's listening, this one day, I get this, I get this image, I get this vision, is what it was, and these two heavenly beings. I, I had no other language for what they were. One shows up on either side of me. And I saw them there, as like I'm looking at you right now, and it rocked my world. It just absolutely uh, blew my mind and terrified me, and I just jolted myself out of the experience. It was incredibly real, but it just freaked me out. And um, I'm like, oh man, am I crazy? I mean, I'm seeing these things as clearly as I see the next person in the room. What is wrong with me? God's answering my prayer, and I'm asking, what's, what's wrong with me? And so it took me even a few days to tell my wife, Nadine, but then I eventually mustered the courage, and, and I told her about it. And she says, you know, you need to go call Doug Addison, because Doug was one of the guys that recently come to our church. Tell Doug about this. He'll be able to help you. Oh, man, I don't want to call Doug. He's going to think I'm crazy. So it took me a few days, it mustered the courage to call Doug about it. And I called Doug. He's like, yeah. He said, you know what? You should, you should call Scott Evelyn because Scott knows more about this. I'm like, man, you know, oh, all right, I'll call Scott. But it took me more days to muster the courage to call Scott. So and I'm was back. there a part of you that was afraid of getting shut down again? Oh, yeah. I, wanted, <laughs> I, I was afraid of being rejected or sure. being told I, I was making it up or that I was crazy or, you know, I was being a fanatic. I don't know. I, Mostly being rejected, to be honest. Yeah, you know, yeah. I didn't want to be rejected. But eventually, you know, maybe it took from the time I saw it to the time I spoke to Scott was a couple of weeks and maybe three weeks. And so I finally talked to Scott and I'm like, and I begin to tell him this story and waiting to be rejected. And he never rejected me. I think the thing that impacted me most in that phone call is that from the first sentence, I could tell. By his responses, he absolutely believed that the experience was real. It was so comforting to me. And so I tell him about these two heavenly beings and what they look like and how I freaked out. And he says to me, so, he said, did you ask him any questions? I said, I can ask them questions. <laughs> he says, yeah, it makes it so much better. So you can ask them questions. I'm like, oh, man, never even thought of that. I said, well, I figured since I got Scott on the phone, it's like, what kind of questions should I ask? He said, here's a couple of good questions. So I asked them who they are. I asked them why they're there. I'm thinking, oh, those are good questions. And so some weeks later, um, remembering what Scott said, these two heavenly beings show up again. And so I asked them, who are you? And they tell me that they are the spirits of wisdom and revelation. I'm like, okay. And I said, well, why are you here? They said, well, we're here to help you know God better. 
And and the light went on. That's Ephesians 1.17. Paul prays for the church at Ephesus that they would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation to know God better. And I was like, that that really helped me. <laughs> that helped me a whole lot. Now, I don't know how many times I read that passage. Never in my wildest dreams did I think the spirit of wisdom and revelation would somehow have personhood to them or personalities to them. But that's how they appeared to me. Later on, it would be revealed that that these two were sent to me as a gift from God, that they would be with me the rest of my life. And um, and they had been. There's been many, many encounters, uh, including them and other heavenly spiritual beings. Uh, so, uh, in encountering spiritual beings, not every spiritual being is of God or a good spiritual being. Correct. Have you had both experiences? Well, early on, when, when my eyes were being opened again, um, I began to see demonic stuff. Like I'd wake up in the middle of the night to be this glowing green head with an ugly so look. So pretty on. easy to tell the difference between something yeah. good and something not good. Yeah. Okay. And or I'd see demons on people, and it really disturbed me. I didn't. I like seeing the heavenly beings. Sometimes they they are so amazing that you know it created awe, um, even a holy kind of terror. But very different feel from the demonic stuff. You know. After seeing a heavenly so, being. So a way that you're able to tell the difference is how your discernment is inside. I mean, you can mm-hmm. discern, this one gives me peace, this one doesn't. This one gives feels like a blessing, this one yeah. doesn't. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, so, in, in a variety of different ways. It's some, okay. You know, sometimes it's just a knowing, oh, this feels good or it doesn't feel mm-hmm. good, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes with the demonic stuff, there's like this sick feeling in my stomach, right? But... So I remember at this point, um, John Paul uh, and I had, you know, we would have interactions, and he had spoken at our. He eventually did come and speak at our church and at a conference we hosted. And so I remember telling him about, you know, seeing the the dark stuff and being disturbed by it. And excuse me, a paraphrase. He he told me a story for his own journey. He he would see a lot of dark things, and he prayed and asked God to take away. Uh, the ability to see the demonic, that he wanted to see what was going on in the kingdom. He wanted to see what's happening in the light. And that God answered that prayer. I'm thinking, hot dog, that sounds awesome, because I really didn't like seeing the demonic stuff. And so I began to pray. I said, Lord, I want to see what you're doing. You know, I don't really care what the enemy's doing. It might be important, but I really want to see what you're doing. I want to see the activity of heaven. I want to see heavenly beings. I want to see what's ever coming from you, not from the enemy. Mm-hmm. And Pretty quickly, I just stopped seeing the dark stuff and began seeing much more of the light stuff. And it's so much better. So much better. And if we're, we're directed by Jesus to pray for your kingdom to come, your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, we don't yeah. need to know what the enemy's doing. We need to know what heaven's doing and yeah. agree with heaven. So, yeah. Yeah. What kind of what sparked uh, part of this conversation? First time John Paul comes out to do a conference for us out in Washington State, and big conference, man. I think we had like 900 people, you know, on the final night of that event. And um, But the, the event opens up, and I'm the host, so I'm going to open up in prayer. And so I open up in prayer, and I'm binding this thing, and I'm casting out that thing, and, and all this other stuff. And after the first session's over, we kind of go back to the room. We had some snacks. And John Paul, what would you think? He said, well, it was a good meeting. He said, it would have been nice if Jesus had top billing. I'm like, what do you mean? He said, well, when you opened up, you know, he addressed this dark thing and that dark thing, the other dark thing. He said, I've discovered that if you invite Jesus to come, the darkness goes. You turn on the light. 
I like that. And it would have been nice if Jesus would have had top billing. Top billing. I was like, oh, <laughs> paradigm shift. <laughs> yeah. And so that's kind of changed my approach to things as well. And and so, um, yeah, and so there's been lots, lots of stuff since lots and lots of visions. Not, I mean, hundreds, hundreds of visions. And, so. and, you know, as you're talking, what occurs to me is along your journey, you had good spiritual fathers and mothers some they wanted the best for you, but they didn't always know what to release to you, and yeah. it sometimes shut down your gift. They no, did. Yeah, and so it seems to me that as a spiritual father yourself now, you have yeah. grown adult children, and you're yeah. you know someday I'll be a grandpa. Right, right? I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, that everybody doesn't have to have their gift shut down like that. If mm-hmm. we have spiritual fathers and mothers that the Lord leads to us that understand our gift, like the people you eventually ended up with that drew out. What God put in you originally, yeah, um, like Paul Keith Davis when he talked about that book. Sure. You know, mm-hmm. it's something that you had and it was there, and and maybe it's God's timing. You weren't ready for some of those things. That could be that you could be. You know, God's in, God's a good God. Sure, but how important spiritual fathers and mothers are in a person's life. Yeah, and who we choose. Right. Yeah. So, so it's been my delight, privilege to pastor prophetic people. You know, still to this day and. Um, Proverbs 14, I think it is, it says that uh, with the ox, the bond is messy, yeah. but a lot of strength comes from the ox. And so I've discovered, especially with um, people who are extraordinarily gifted, prophetic people in particular, that they can be messy. And so I think, at least in the churches I have the, the privilege to pastor, I'm okay with messy. You know, I think God is vastly more okay with messy than most churches are. Mm-hmm. And I'm okay with messy. So if we're going to make space for people to use their gifts and talents, no one's going to do it perfectly, right? Uh, they're going to make mistakes along the way. And rather than reject them or punish them for using their gift and not doing it perfectly, let's love them. Let's. I want, I want to do with them what happens when I'm with the Father. He encourages me. He speaks to me about... Uh, about um, who he created me to be. I don't know that he's ever really hammered me on, you know, my imperfections. Mm-hmm. And so when I pastor people, are they going to make mistakes? Absolutely going to make mistakes. Is it going to be messy sometimes? Yeah, it's going to be messy. I remember telling one church, I said, hey, this is my philosophy. Um, I'm gonna, we're going to let the bush overgrow. We're going to experiment with things. We're going to explore with things. And I says, uh, and then later on, after the bush overgrows a bit, I'm going to come back and trim it where it needs to be trimmed. Otherwise, it'll never grow to its fullness. If I'm always there, out there whacking away, whacking away, this, it'll never grow. I want it to grow into the fullness of whatever God wants it to be. And if that's the case, sometimes we have to allow things to be messy. How do we do that? We've got to love one another. Mm-hmm. Right? Peter writes, above all, love one another intensely. And learn how to love and honor people and still keep firm boundaries with them. The body of Christ is learning that better. We haven't done it well always. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been wonderful. Would you pray for um, anybody who's listening who either sure. has walked through life and ha- feels like they've been shut down? Yeah. Or people who are just getting into these things and are looking for spiritual mothers and fathers who can yeah. help them. Yeah, yeah. You bet. Okay. Oh, God, you're so good. Father, I thank you for the journey that you've had me on. And I pray for those going forward that what's taken decades uh, for me, Lord, would take months for them. 
Lord, I pray that you would go before them and that you would clear the path, that you would put the right people at the right time in the right places on their path to, to help them along on their journey. Lord, that you would remove uh, the obstacles and the hindrances, Lord, that could derail them or even stop them you know, on their journey. I pray for everyone listening that you do for them what you did for me. Give them eyes that see, Lord. Give them ears that hear. Lord, I pray that, that you would speak their language and that they would learn to recognize when it's you. Speak to them in ways that they readily recognize as you. Do it, Lord. Do mm-hmm. it, Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you would raise up healthy spiritual mothers, healthy spiritual fathers, who can love people, even the messy people, the messiest people. Love them in healthy ways and help them reach their destinies. And do it all to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So thank you, Tom. And we've been talking to Tom Zawacki. And if you want to contact Tom, you can get him at thomaszawacki.com. That's T-H-O-M-A-S-Z-A-W-A-C-K-I.com. All right. Blessings and thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Dare to Believe podcast. If you'd like more information on this podcast or upcoming events, please visit our website at daretobelieve.info. That's dare, the number two, believe.info. Thank you and have a great day.